Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to the official 100th episode of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. That's right, you heard me, 100 episodes. A huge milestone to be sure. We are so incredibly grateful for all the great guests we've had over the past couple years, and I wanna be the first to tell you, dear listener, that we're just getting started. Now that we're officially in the triple digits, I thought it might be nice for us to take a little step back and look out at the state of the union, so to speak, for spirits and cocktails. A lot of things can happen in two years, and I think it's really valuable to take that reflection time to look at what's happened and where things are headed. This episode, I'm joined by Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall, who takes the reins as the podcast host and grills me on the ins and outs of the cocktail world for your entertainment. But first, let's get serious here and give you the chance, as always, to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Element Mojito. We are absolutely thrilled to be partnering with Element Shrub to offer their full line of shrub concentrates on modernbarcart.com, so I teamed up with Charlie Birkinshaw of Element Shrub to develop some really delicious batched cocktails using a full bottle of shrub, a full bottle of spirits, and our delicious embitterment bitters. Last week, we introduced the Element Mule, featuring their ginger lime shrub, and this week, we bring you a fun floral take on a classic mojito. To make the Element Mojito, you'll need one 8-ounce bottle of Element Lemon Mint Shrub, one full 750 ml or 25-ounce bottle of white rum. We used Lion Distilling Company's white rum, which is incredible. It's the rum that turned me into a rum person and one bottle of Embitterment Lavender Bitters, followed by the club soda or sparkling water of your choice. It's gotta be watery and it's gotta have bubbles. To make this large format cocktail, combine the rum and shrub in a large pitcher with ice. Then in Collins glasses, muddle fresh mint leaves, then fill with ice. Add two to three ounces of the rum shrub mixture, fill with your sparkling water and then Here's the important part, float several dashes of Embitterment Lavender Bitters right on top for a nice floral pop each time you go in for a sip, that's key. And the fun thing is, mint and lavender are kind of in the same family and they just, man, they they do so well together. This is a really fun spin on a classic and I love the fact that you still have a little bit of wiggle room to kind of customize it to your own preferences. This recipe makes 12 to 16 servings, which means It's kind of a no-brainer if you're hosting a Memorial Day or 4th of July party this summer. And to celebrate our partnership with Element Shrub, if you enter the coupon code ELEMENT at checkout, you'll receive 10% off your next order from modernbarcart.com now through June 30th, 2019. Pretty sweet deal if I do say so myself. So now that you've got your drink in hand, let's get funky with this boozy State of the Cocktail Union interview with Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall. Some of the things he and I discuss include a look back at two years of podcasting, 
plus recommendations for folks who might want to try their hand at recording and publishing audio for the world to enjoy. I take you through the things that worked for me and the things that didn't work so well. Category by category hot takes on the state of various spirits and where they're headed. Thoughts on cocktail fads like clarified juices, tiki, amari, and speakeasies. A bunch of fun new lightning round questions designed specifically for this interview. Advice for young people trying to break into the cocktail scene at home or professionally. My personal reflections on what modern bar cart has become and where it's headed, and much, much more. This numerical transition into the triple digits zone, as far as podcast episodes go, means great things ahead for you as a listener. And to be honest, I've been really excited to get here because it lends a bit of gravitas to what we do on a weekly basis. So before we get into the interview, I'd like to say this. We at Modern Bar Cart are committed now more than ever to bringing you extremely nutritious and engaging spirits and cocktail information in a format that you can trust and enjoy. As a podcast host, I try my level best not to talk down to our listeners or oversimplify what our guests bring to the table for the sake of a sexy soundbite. What I've learned from creating a cocktail company, hosting 100 podcast episodes, and and even judging international spirits competitions is that even the most tentative new home bartender has natural skills and knowledge that can lead to a fulfilling cocktail hobby, and even the most seasoned industry professional has room to learn and expand their perspective by questioning the status quo. What we do at our best is provide a forum where novices and experts can all learn something and enjoy themselves, no matter what they bring to the table in terms of experience. So if you have ideas about how we can do that better, you know you can always reach out by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com. I give a few little teasers at the end of this episode about some cool new initiatives that we have in the pipeline to continue serving you better. So definitely keep your ears peeled for that, But for now, it is my distinct pleasure to step aside and hand the reins over to Modern Bar Cart co-founder Ethan Hall for this momentous episode 100. Please enjoy. All right. Well, let's uh, turn the tables a little bit. This is going to be kind of messed up for you. You're going to have to be interviewed by someone. Has that ever happened to you before? Uh, It's actually, I actually had a good little practice round Yesterday, actually, I had a guy named Corey Cambridge who does a podcast called OPP, Other People's Podcasts, and he was uh, in D.C. for someone's graduation. He was able to kind of hit me up, so I got a little practice being interviewed, but I'll try not to step on your toes too much here. All right. Well, Corey Cambridge uh, sounds like my kind of people, just given his his geographic-based last name. Um, Let's just (laughs) – you know, all right, so Eric D.C., let's – Let's dive in a little bit. I know you want to do this as a bit of a state of the union. So, you know, looking back a little bit, let's, you know, let you talk about yourself a little. What do you think are the high and low points? What have you accomplished personally and professionally? And, you know, what has the last two years looked like for this podcast and this business? So personally, this is a really interesting time because I'm about to turn 30 in the space of two days. So it's kind of like that, like 
really big inflection point in a person's life. I feel like 30 is like kind of, you can't really escape adulthood at that point. And so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the downside of a, a couple day fast that I've been doing. Personally, I've been trying to be healthier. Uh, I've got a new home. And so that transition has been something we've been working on slowly, but surely I've got some hot peppers that I'm trying to sprout currently so that hopefully sometime the next year or two, I can get a, get a really interesting bed of spicy peppers out in my window wells here in Petworth in DC. But beyond that, I mean, I think for the podcast and for modern bar cart in general, this has been a great two years. Uh, it's definitely been kind of a complex couple of years. We, we kind of started modern bar cart in late 2017 as, as a bit of a pivot. And I think what we've been able to do since then is we've been able to build a podcast that is right now when listeners are listening to this at a hundred episodes, this is a centennial podcast and, and that's a mark that, that most podcasts don't get to. So very thankful for that. Uh, very thankful for all the folks who have been podcast guests and also to our listeners, you know, this is, this is huge because we're at a point right now where we're getting, um, you know, several like thousands and thousands of downloads a month. And, you know, if you, if you put that next to the, the big podcasts out there, it looks like nothing. It looks like a drop in the bucket, but it's actually really big. Most podcasts don't get past a couple episodes and I'm really grateful for the community that we've been able to, to build. So I basically we'll, we'll talk, I think later on in the episode about maybe some of the stuff that we have to come, but in terms of the state of the unit of the podcast is the union is strong and it's only going to get stronger. Uh, so, you know, I think, I don't know, that's not something I could, I could see a, a president of the United States saying anytime in the next like couple of years or so at a state of the union. So I think I'm pretty proud to say that about the podcast and about modern bar cart in terms of what we're going to be able to very shortly offer folks in terms of some, some new offerings on, on the site, in addition to the podcast and the recipes and, and the products. All right. All right. Let's get uh, you almost veered into politics there. And I'd like to avoid that. You're not 35 yet, so you can't even, you know, throw your hat in the ring for the 2020 uh, nomination. That's true. I've got some time to kind of develop, kind of incubate. Yeah. Let's we'll work on your platform, but let's uh, I mean, let's go back to let's get back to the some of the roots. Let, let's talk through, you know, what is you or your average, you know, you hang out with a group of people who are very important to this world, but not what our listeners are probably used to. What's like a day in the life of your average booze entrepreneur before someone drops out of their career like you kind of did to get into this? You know, what is uh, you know, what's the day to day look like? I assume you're just chugging straight from a barrel of whiskey day in and day out, right? Yeah, basically. I mean, that that's one that, that's that's Wednesday. <laughs> it, it, it looks very different depending on what day it is. I mean, right now I'm in the process of like transferring storage units, which is very glamorous. Uh, I mean, I have to admit, like, like going from the fourth floor in Ivy city of DC to the first floor in Petworth. I mean, come on, that is, that's some, that's some swank, but, uh, every day is, is really pretty different for me. Um, since I'm the guy who is responsible for both kind of fulfilling orders, running events, making sure all the, all the stuff that we currently produce gets made correctly and on time and, and our inventory is up to date. Days are very, very different. And I, I think if, if anybody is out there wondering about pursuing 
a career in the spirits or mixers or any, any sort of industry where you are a maker of something, whether it's a podcast or a product. I mean, I think you have to be able to embrace a little bit of complexity, a little bit of chaos. I, you mentioned like kind of like abandon a career. I didn't really have a career. I did legal marketing for a couple of years. And so the cool thing for me is was it, like, I didn't feel like I was abandoning a career to do this. I felt like I was actually stepping into a career. And so I think that's a really important distinction for people. If they, if they might think that, that doing something in the spirits or cocktail world is interesting to them, I think a good litmus test is to say like, does it feel like I'm stepping into something or does it feel like I'm, I'm, you know, moving away from something that was a little bit more safe. And I think that tells you a little something about yourself, but I mean, just this week I had a podcast interview here with, with Corey Cambridge. Can't wait to share that out on social. So y'all can hear it had some bespoke projects that are about to launch spoiler spoiler so i've been working on those a little bit um just making sure that that our clients who are uh, counting on us to make some really great cocktail bitters for them are absolutely happy and absolutely fulfilled in in what they're getting and, and it reflects their brand and just you know keeping the podcast the cash flow everything like that up and running it's 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 a big job especially when you know i'm trying to trying to move apartments but that's kind of the game. And so, yeah, I think, I think the, uh, a day in the life of an average booze entrepreneur, unless you're a distiller who has a ton of money is kind of chaotic. I, I will say that the, probably the most fun I've had in the past two weeks was right at the end of April, I had a totally awesome photo shoot with Charlie Birkinshaw of Element Shrub. And we're actually, by the time this podcast launches, we're going to have all of Element Shrub's products up on modernbarcart.com. So definitely check that out. Hit the feeds for all those beautiful photos. And um, yeah, that that was super fun. We did pretty much in like a half day photo shoot and it, it we got some really gorgeous takes. So that that there are moments where I was like, is it weird that I'm like running around a park with Charlie Birkinshaw, like trying to find Eastern redbud blossoms so that we can put these in a cocktail photo and like some kids walk by and look at like these weird 30 year old guys, like picking flowers in a park at noon on a Wednesday. But that was actually like a really awesome validating day for me. So there, even though there's some chaos there, there's definitely a lot of good that comes out of it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So there is a healthy you're what we we could call a functioning workaholic here a little bit yeah you you definitely have to be a workaholic right because work never leaves and i i think for me that causes a little bit of anxiety so if there's if there's a downside for folks considering this kind of path i mean yeah if you're the kind of person who can't turn your brain off like I do, you're going to have to find a way to turn your brain off and optimize for sleep and to be able to wake up. If, if you're a person who values you know, physical fitness, you're going to have to find also a way to wake up and get to the gym and wake up and get out for your run. I've been to the gym you know, twice this week and gone for two runs. That didn't happen magically. That, that happened as a sacrifice to other things. So it's, you know, it's, it's complex. And I think that's what I love about it because I'm a, I'm a, complexity-minded person. Yeah, and we don't have to delve into this this episode. We'll have plenty of content in the future, but, you know, it makes me think about the fact that, you know, in this industry, it's a not a secret that there are a lot of easy ways to slip into less healthy behaviors to turn that part of your brain off, to get yourself back, you know, back to sleep after you get off of a shift at 4 a.m. And, you know, good on you for being, being in a fast right now, you know, 
that I think you you can't say enough about that when you're talking about, you know, how do you transition into the industry and not, you know, end up washed out. Yeah, well, and I, I think honestly, the podcast is one of the big things that keeps me from like falling into that because I have a weekly commitment of content to a bunch of people who really appreciate it. And so for me, the podcast is a great way to motivate myself to make those healthier choices. Yeah. Glad you made that pivot because I think the other thing that we've seen, we've been kicking it around in a group chat a little bit, but you know, if one of our, you know, there are listeners out there, there are people who are fans of things who are always just like, no, I can do that. Breaking into podcasting, you know, we've talked a lot about what you needed to get this off the ground. And, you know, I, I would love to just do a little bit of a looking back over two years on a hundred episodes. What is the most important thing or what makes it easiest? Is it, you know, getting a budget where you just have the money to buy all your fun gadgets, gizmos and toys? Is it get, is it just knowing enough people that you can generate that content or is it, you know, technical talent? Cause I mean, we've heard, we've both heard Bill Burr's podcast. That thing sounds like shit. Yeah. Well, it's just Bill Burr yelling, right? Which is amazing in, in its own right. But I, I understand what you're saying. So when I first started out the podcast, I, I did make a bit of a mistake and it wasn't really a mistake. It was just that the person I was asking for advice didn't really offer the advice for, for like the, the setting where it could be best utilized. So I first asked somebody who used to be a morning radio DJ about like what equipment I should get to start off my podcast. And he recommended like some condenser mics. And these are the ones that you see in radio studios. They're, they're kind of bigger, they're cylindrical. They've got a pretty like wide kind of big presence. And they pick up everything in the room. So if you listen to the first like 10 to 12 episodes of the podcast, like you, you can hear like my neighbors coming in with their dogs and running up the stairs. Then what I did is I, I did a little research, talked to an actual sound engineer and he was like, Oh, you need a, a dynamic mic, not a, not a condenser mic. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, so the condenser mics were definitely more expensive, maybe 80 bucks a piece. The condenser mics much cheaper, like 30 to $60 a piece. And so I'm just using kind of Amazon's favorite audio technica. I believe it's the ATR 2100 right here. That was a huge uptick in audio quality. So like, I would say the big thing for people, if you want like really good audio quality out of the gate, get yourself a good condenser mic that you can use through USB. Like that's the one big thing. After that, you can talk about like getting an analog digital interface, which is about a hundred, 200 bucks. Like that'll help your audio quality. I've got one of those. And then the, the, the first time I actually made a large investment for the modern bar car podcast was getting uh, my zoom H six, which is my backup recorder right now, but it's also what I, I take on the road with me. So when I travel, that's a huge thing. And so like the pattern that I'll identify there also kind of fits the way that you start your podcast. I think you should start a podcast either solo or with a group of people that you can really count on to, to do at least 10 episodes together and get a proof of concept for that. You don't really need super good recording technology. If you've got those regular dynamic mics, like, like we're using right now, the audio quality is going to be great. And you can see if, if the concept is there or not, then once you start gaining a little traction, you can start investing in stuff piece by piece 
as you kind of understand the workflow of your show, because every show is going to be different. So for me, going out to like Tales of the Cocktail, for example, where, where you and me and our other co-founder, Russell, are going to be uh, heading in July, that little... H6, that little Zoom mic is going to be instrumental for us to be able to record audio both like at the tasting rooms and the seminars there, as well as back in our hotel rooms if we do a recap of the seminars we did that day. So a little bit more expensive, kind of like $400, but you know, kind of phase your equipment in as your podcast progresses. I think that's my big uh, recommendation. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, what you basically said is this is a hobby you can turn into a real thing expect to invest in it with the same degree of cash and intensity that you would with the hobby you're really into if you're obsessed with something 400 bucks for you know whatever it is you're into is a reasonable expense if you're just casual 80 bucks on a mic whatever Right. And I will say that like, if you're a kind of person who needs validation constantly, and that that's something that can be measured easily with like regular personality testing, it's not a pejorative thing. Some people just need validation. If you're that person, don't start a podcast because <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you're not going to get it. You're going to look at those numbers on your podcasting hosts feed and you're going to be like, Oh, five people listen to me this month. Yeah, that's how it starts out. That's how it always starts out. And we we have not fed any advertising or any any big kind of promotional stuff into this podcast. And now we've got thousands of people listening to us every month. But that's not a factor of how we start out. That's a factor of us continually posting good quality nutritious content and the fact that we're 100 episodes old right now. Yeah. So, dude, that actually makes me think of something is you're talking about external validation we haven't blown up to the point where we've got, you know, a divisive community or a Reddit sub thread that is, uh, that is, <laughs> you know, arguing over things or, uh, you know, cy- doing a cyber bullying. So that, that, you know, that might be a blessing and a curse. But I think that's a blessing. I, I think. All right. Well, let's talk about the people who do have that, you know, the godfathers or the godmothers of podcasting. You know, there are obviously big personalities out there who make their money doing it. You know, people like Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss. You know, Dan Carlin with his hardcore history, practically audiobooks that he releases every couple of months. What, you know, what if anything, you know, we're both avid listeners. Is there someone who made you want to give this a shot and be part of the medium? And if, if you dare, let's talk about this. You know, can you do a pretty good impression of that person? You've probably heard like 80 hours of their voice at this point in your life. I've, I've got, I've got something for you. I've got the, the intro which you were asking for ahead of time. I do, I do have that. Um, that's going to be a little separate from this, but I think, I think overall Tim Ferriss's podcast was huge to me because when I cut the cord and all of a sudden went full-time entrepreneur, I had a lot of time on my hands, not, not necessarily time when I wasn't busy, but time when I was driving time, when I was, doing stuff and trying to think about what my project was and trying to, to really make progress. And, and I think Tim Ferriss's content on entrepreneurship is, is really world-class just because of the people he has access to. And I think he's developed tremendously over the years as a host. I think he's a much better interviewer now than he was when I first started listening to him. And that actually inspired me and it caused me to examine my own podcast host tendency. So that was valuable to me in that respect. 
you know, Joe Rogan's fun. You know, what happens is when, whenever you listen to anybody for a, for a long period of time, you get those eye roll moments where you're like, oh my God, Tim Ferriss is talking about Japan again, or oh my God, Joe Rogan's talking about, uh, ayahuasca again. It's like, okay, like, can we, can we fast forward like, you know, 30 seconds or two minutes to try and avoid this thing? But in terms of the, food centric podcast that inspires me the most. And, uh, this is maybe not for everybody, but I, I am a huge fan of cooking issues with Dave Arnold and Dave Arnold is famously the host or the, the rather the author of liquid intelligence, which is this massive, beautiful, hardcover technical manual that we always advocate on the show. But Dave Arnold is this like mystical beast and that he is and a New Yorker through and through, at least in the way that he kind of comports himself on air. He's confrontational, he's abrasive, and he's always fucking right. And that's what I love about him is that he's so technically entrenched and so deeply concerned with, with these minute variables that when somebody asks him a really, really tricky question... He doesn't back away from it. He dives just head into it and really confronts it. And I think that's why he's been able to develop such a giant community around cooking issues on the Heritage Radio Network in New York. And I, my personal thesis is that there's not enough good food and beverage podcasting out there. There's there's good there there are some good food and beverage podcasts, but I don't think that there are enough. And so that's why I keep doing what I'm doing and, and why I always recommend to people who enjoy our podcast, Cooking Issues by Dave Arnold. So I do have the Modern Bar Cart podcast intro written down here. If you'd like me to try and back away from the mics because he always hollers it. So you want me to give this a try? Yeah. Hello and welcome to Modern Bar Cart. I'm Eric Koslick, your host of Modern Bar Cart, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. From, I don't know, maybe 12, 12, 32, you know, whatever. I'm joined as always by Ethan the Hammer Hall and Matt in the booth. That was amazing. And, <laughs> is yeah. that is that somewhat accurate? <laughs> oh, that was dead on. Now, you know me. I listen to podcasts at 150 uh, or at 1.5x, so his is so insanely fast. I think he's auctioning something off. Yeah, it's uh, ridiculous. But yeah, so uh, moral of the story, if that was interesting to you, listen to Cooking Issues, that's the ridiculous intro. After that, it gets more normal. Yeah, I mean, let's let's do a little bit. I think you answered a lot of my next question. I just want to get into just a bit is, all right, so obviously, like, one of the best things that happened, I think, culturally in the celebration of food in the media had been the evolution from the Julia Child-style instructional cooking show all the way up to the era of obnoxious celebrity chefs and into cooking competitions. But I'm curious, do you see this happening in podcasting? Do you see this going in a different direction for this medium? Because we haven't seen a Guy Fieri podcast or well, you know, I, I think Bobby Flay, but audio. The answer version. to that is that all good podcasts transition into video at some point. I think... There's something to be said for having a podcast that has both an audio and a visual component. I think the Joe Rogan podcast is a good example of that. I think ESPN in general is a good example of that. Like, you know, you could also look at Hot Ones on YouTube where they where they eat spicy wings and interview celebrities. It's a great video podcast. I, th I think podcasts that are really great should evolve into video, and and maybe more on that later. But 
Yeah, I, I don't think that I don't think it would be as interesting to yep. to listen to Guy Fieri talk about Flavortown uh, or donkey sauce on on audio as opposed to seeing his just depraved face. But but uh, what I what I will say is you know th- there's some trends out there. You know there's there's VR, there's ASMR, there's like all these YouTube trends, right? I don't know that the pod that the podcast medium is is going to evolve too too much because with like ASMR you're just really talking about like mouth noises and and that's actually a, a topic on cooking issues that that you, that listeners universally hate is they hate mouth noises on the microphone so I don't say, see how ASMR is going to to help very much unless you have a completely silent cocktail bar and just like bartenders silently shaking cocktails or glass clinking like that could be something but and then in terms of VR, I just, I really don't see like any of that really taking off with food because what's more interesting, you know, like virtually experiencing food or actually eating food or drinking drink, you know? Yeah. I mean, other than those weird, uh, you know, honestly, if I could get this job, it'd be great. So I could quit my day job. Those people who, have, you know, eat a bunch of hamburgers on video for do for. Yeah, creepy I've, never, dudes I've, I've never understood that. But hey, if, if you find uh, an opportunity you know, that, 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 that works out, like sign me up, I'll eat some stuff on camera. Um, I can make a last word with my feet. <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> Perfect. All right. I, I will get off the podcasting topic with one more thing. So I actually, actually wait, went no, back. No, I, I, got, I have a question for you. So you were talking about like, um, you know, Julia Child's celebrity chefs competitions and stuff like that. What, um, what, what food network slash food celebrity or drink celebrity, if you had a gun to your head, would you compare me to on this podcast? And if you can't do that, if you have to use my real life personality, which is much worse than the podcast personality, feel free. Um, as much as you think you'd like to be, and no, you probably don't, but everyone thinks that they want to be Tony Bourdain. You're not, you've lived way too clean a life and, uh, you're, you're angry, you're mean, you're angry, but it doesn't come from a place of, <laughs> it's, it's not ingrained with you. There's a, so, you know, I'm going to go away from that, uh, that easy route. And I'm going to say, you know, you, you may question this, but I'm actually going to say it's Guy Fieri. Um, no, dude. All right, all right, all right. Hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. Not the way you comport yourself on camera, but you know, this is you can blush a little. But Guy Fieri is among the most genuine and ge- most genuine boosters of every person he encounters and puts on his shows. He's an enthusiastic persona he bring he brings it every day that man has an insane work ethic and you do also love your alliteration so there's one little you know thing you've got in common what what if what if andrew zimmern and alton brown had a love child so he wasn't as much of an asshole as alton brown but he also wasn't just kind of like as bald old guy who eats weird stuff as andrew zimmern all right, so I can see the Andrew Zimmerd. And Andrew Zimmerd, interestingly enough, you go back over, I'm going to plug we'll plug more podcast media, The Hilarious World of Depression. That dude actually, you know, has a pretty gritty past. So you know what? Definitely. I'll give you I'll give you Andrew Zimmerd. I've seen you eat some things that are questionable. I've seen him eat like puffins stuff, like like puffins, which is like you know, pretty, pretty, you've got to, you've got to double down and eat puffins. So yeah, I'll take, I'll take Andrew Zimmer and all with his, uh, with a side of Guy Fieri, even though it makes me cringe. So let's, uh, let's, let's get away from this. I'm, I, I kind of regret asking that question now. All right. So, um, <laughs> I will not quote, uh, episode one of Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives, 
But let's uh, let's think about this. I I did actually go back before we did this and listen to episode one, not the wonderful George Lucas Star Wars picture of 1998, 99 fame. You're better than that. But, you know, the subject was the joy of home bartending. And this was a lot of pre guest interview content that we're just trying to get out there into the world. How do you feel like it stands up at this point? And, you know, are you proud of taking that step and getting something out there into the ether, even if, you know, you had to, you know, hear yourself talk while you edited it? Yeah, well, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this is, this. that was the one I did with Alex and Jordan of uh, the Speaking Easy podcast. Oh my right? God, you're right, yeah. So I think that's probably my favorite part about that episode, The Joy of Home Bartending. Episode zero was just kind of like a, hey, here's a summary of what we're about to launch. Because we dropped, I think, like at least five episodes all at once, if not more than five, because I had read somewhere that that was important. So we pre-recorded, we did a big drop. So for, for that episode in particular, what I, what I like most is that, that Alex and Jordan's podcast, the Speaking Easy podcast, which is still available out there. You can still go through it. It's got over a hundred episodes, although we're, we're catching up on them fast here. It's a, it's a great starter, I think, for people who want to really get a good basis for what cocktails taste like and how to make them. And if you're the kind of person who really likes to get into host personas, Alex and Jordan have a really great back and forth that, that that's great for that. I know when I, I was listening to this when I was still working my day job and I, I felt really connected with them. And it was, it was a big honor for me to be able to connect with them to do our episode one. So I think it stands up really well. I think the audio quality is a little bit, a uh, little bit dicey, but I think that it, you know, the, the central theses that we have in there, especially when followed up with some of the other episodes in that first 10, 10 episode block, like how to build your home bar, the hardware, the software, uh, the glassware. Uh, I think, I think it really holds up and, you know, I'd love to always, you know, go back and revisit if those guys want to do another episode, they can always hit me up. I'd, I'd always love to, to have them back on the show. Yeah. I honestly feel like that was almost a, you know, a changing of the guard, if you will, in terms of DC based booze podcast hosts loved their show when you first introduced me to it. But after a while, it's kind of like, all right, you guys are going to move on to bigger and better things. Let's get a new host in the mix and a new concept. And it was pretty gracious of them to, you know, hop on there and give us the time of day. Well, and I still like Tyler, their producer was just on for the CBD cocktails episode. I still get in touch with, with Alex, who's still here or uh, rather Jordan, who's still here in DC. So they're, they're still very much in the mix and um, yeah, they're, they're great guys who really know their spirits and cocktails. You know, I'm, I'm still blown away by the number of times they reference the brandied cherries recipe. <laughs> Hey, I mean, brandy chairs are hard to make. And if you can do it well at home, that's um, it's, it's a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, let's change some gears here. I want to talk through this is going to get a little bit more state of the union because we definitely went down the, you know, how how are we doing? What's the podcast like rabbit hole? Can we talk spirits? Yeah, let's do it. Before we do hot takes, I am. Well, you know me. I am a recently converted capitalist and always looking for ways to increase the value of my portfolio. Know a lot of people invest in wine. I want to invest in spirits. What do I buy a case of today that I can flip five years from now? It's a little bit hard for me to answer like the case flipping question, uh, because I think basically if, if you're looking to do the case flipping thing where you buy something 
when it's low and then sell it when it's high is you kind of just have to go around tasting really amazing or like tasting, tasting spirits that you don't maybe know if they're going to be amazing. Like my, my white whale is McClintock distillings batch one gin. It was the best batch one gin I've ever had. And unfortunately unaged spirits are never going to carry with them the cachet of aged spirits. But it's one of those things where if you come across a batch one of something and you think it is completely phenomenal and you think that that like based on your expert knowledge that brand is going to skyrocket in the coming years yeah buy a case or two of that you know i think that's a flippable thing but to take your question in a slightly different direction i think if you want to start out a distillery and 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 make a lot of money in the next decade or so i have one piece of advice that, that may actually be useful in, in the financial space. And, and that, that piece of advice is really how you approach your operation. I think the most crucial thing is to know if you are going to make spirits and you are going to make spirits that you want to charge people good money for and make a good profit on, you have to know what you're charging people for. And, and I really think there's two routes you can take. I think you can take the local route where you kind of select a region, right? And, and you, you say, look, I'm operating in the Rockies. I'm operating in the Pacific Northwest or in the desert or in the Caribbean or wherever you may be and identify something about your area, the traditional flavors and products that come out of that area and the opportunities that you have to, to take those things and incorporate them and or spin them into something new and use that to serve your local population who's going to uniquely appreciate that thing more than anybody else anywhere else in the world. And that that kind of makes you a local slash regional hero. And there's a lot of money to be made at the local and regional level. That's why we have like double digit distilleries here in DC. There's a lot right. of money to be made. The other way you could go is to kind of go like the, like, listen, I'm going to go big fast route. And that, that route kind of requires you to specialize because if you're not specializing, then you can't be that one bottle that all the distributors say, Oh, for this purpose, you need this and then hand it. And then you fill that one niche, but you fill it everywhere in the country or everywhere in the world. And I think the big mistake that most distillers or people who approach craft spirits make is is not being clear on that path to market from the very beginning. So if you're the kind of person who is looking to like jump into things and make money, I think you need to be very clear about your approach to market and not be wishy-washy about it at all starting out. You can be unclear as to how some things are going to turn out, right? But you need to be clear about the core of what you're going to be doing. Otherwise, you're going to be one of these distilleries that starts, operates for five years, and then closes at a loss makes sense all right let's get into so i'm gonna lead you into a hot take but i am curious you know we've talked about a lot of these you know kind of like how mezcal wasn't an anywhere 10 years ago i was in ireland last year and it's funny because i was drinking poutine which is the godfather you know spirit unaged the you know the ancestor of irish whiskey and i was thinking Huh. I wonder if the bartenders are going to jump on board with this and start, you know, elevating this spirit. And then you did, you know, you've talked about clearing, you know, the, right. you know, the rum's country cousin, as we like to, you know, say, is there something else that 
you're tuned into that you know you think has potential to take off or it's just really interesting that you'd want the listeners to think about well i think the allure of those those spirits the the precursors Puccine, clarine we're seeing geneva make a massive splash right now in the mid-atlantic everybody is coming out with the geneva which is the the precursor to both whiskey and gin ironically uh, so I think what right now, if I were to like step back and look at that trend, I would say people are searching for authenticity because there's such a land grab right now in the spirits industry in terms of big brands trying to buy out these successful, small, well delineated brands. And I think what people are seeing is like, oh, Diageo bought X or Bacardi bought Y or Pernod Ricard bought Delmagay. You know, like, is this really authentic anymore? And I think it's like to redirect the question a little bit. I think if people are really interested in authentic spirits, I think the answer is to to look more into the practices of these big companies that are exerting the, the majority of the market force and say, all right, if I'm an individual investor or person who wants to support brands, what can I support that is going to keep a small authentic brand going that's not going to allow somebody to just walk in, put a check on the table, and then massively commodify and simplify and strip the flavor out of everything that they're doing. So we can get into some of those methods here as, as we talk about this, the individual spirits, but I think overall that's kind of my approach. All right, so then let's do some hot takes. Let's do um, it. Let's talk about spirits. Um, I'm going to give you a category. You get one to two sentences. I want you to be done 10 seconds okay. on each of these. All right, whiskey. Big category. Uh, let's say American whiskey. Uh, I think American whiskey is a bit stagnant, which is going to offend most bourbon fans out there. I know that. I didn't say it's not good, but I think it's stagnant. And for me, the most exciting American category is single malts, which tells you a little bit about the state of the market. Mm, interesting. I uh, I think I know one of the ones you're talking about. You gave you gifted me a bottle of it. Pretty tasty. Uh, all right, Jen. So I keep hearing that gin is the next big thing and that here in the U.S., we're only experiencing a small portion of the gin craze that's currently sweeping Europe and the rest of the world. So my big question, I think the hanging question for me is, is that gin craze going to spread to the U.S. or are we just too much of cretins to be able to appreciate what gin has to offer? Again, probably going to offend some people. I thought gin had already arrived. Right. But every time I hear someone from Europe or someone from somewhere else in the world talking about gin, they're like, nah, U.S. in the U.S., gin ain't shit yet. Just wait. Oh, uh, you know coming. what? I you know what? Actually, one of the best uh, best bar experiences I've ever had was a gin only bar in Berlin. That, yeah, okay, good point. And th and just for the record, for our listeners who haven't been there, Berlin is a place where if you transplant any person from Brooklyn, um, they're gonna feel incredibly uncool. And it's delightful how absurd that is. But let's keep going. Vodka, divisive spirit. Uh, always divisive. I mean, it's always been a marketing game, right? Nobody makes vodka for cocktails. And uh, I'd say if you're an avid vodka drinker, I guess I call that something akin to somebody who gets really jazzed about an art viewing with a, just a bunch of blank canvases. So I think the future of vodka is really uncertain. I think we're going to see flavored vodka start to peter out a little bit, at least the nasty ones. I think we're, we're seeing like some really good craft flavored vodkas, but in terms of the 
the just straight vodkas, that's a little bit up in the air right now. I'd be very curious to see where just straight unflavored vodka goes because I have no clue what's going to happen with it. All right, rum. Probably my favorite category. Uh, I think we're what we're going to see here is is really interesting. I think we're going to see more regulations in the rum world because I know that there are actively people who are working to get the the rules in individual countries like Barbados recognized on the world and the U.S. stage. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that can happen for rum is for these different regions to really differentiate themselves and show drinkers what each different island or region or country has to offer when it comes from and how different that is from the other ones around them. Because I think rum right now is a very homogenous category in the American consciousness, but that doesn't reflect what it actually is. Yeah, you're not the uh, only one talking about this. We both know it's there's... It, all that counts as a definition for rum is that it was made from sugar cane in some form. And sugar cane can take so many damn forms. It, it's it's astounding. But, you know, that aside, um, speaking of things that people are using in lieu of sugar, agave spirits. I think the big trend in agave is sustainability. And I think it needs to be because agave takes like, 10 to 20 years to mature in many cases. And we are consuming it. We're guzzling that shit at a rate that is not sustainable to its continued growth. And so what I would say is, and, and actually what I would advocate is to try and learn a little bit more about agave sustainability and support brands who are actually doing that and brands who are at least on the surface purporting not to be exploiting the people who are making it. Any agave spirit, especially mezcal, is a very exploitative at its base. But at least if you're going to drink, if you really love those flavors, if you want to celebrate those people and what they do, try and make sure it's sustainable. Got it. All right. Brandy and eau de vie. This is tricky. Uh, I really want to see it flourish. I really love unaged eau de vie. Our, our buddy Russell thinks Singani is garbage. I think he's garbage. Um, I, I think for... Aged brandies and clear brandies, the market's going to be uh, unreceptive for two different reasons. For aged brandies, I think the American palate is actually getting a little bit more adventurous, and I think that is leaving the really mellow kind of like, imagine a bourbon but smoother flavor profile in the dust. And yet, for unaged brandies, I think there's still a lot of hurdles to entry because they a lot of them have names we're not familiar with. Slivovitz, Singani, Pisco, Cachaca. Well, that's not a great, but, um, you know, uh, Calvados even. Like, like there's some big barriers to entry there. So I think brandy is going to be a struggling category over the next couple of years, but I hope I'm proven wrong. Imagine if at, you know, clubs like the now closed Love or the still open Echo Stage, people were ordering bottles of Laird's apple brandy to their tables instead of Covassier. Oh, or just, yeah, or, you know, say, hey, it's French. Order some Calvados. I think that'd be, that'd be a really classy drunk, all you folks out there at Echo Stage next to my storage unit. All right. Um, we have a lot, we, we could, we've done episodes on this, but liqueurs and Amari, giant category. Break it down. One sentence. Uh, for liqueurs, I think those are going to get weirder. I think you're going to, uh, like you've got a prickly pear liqueur. Uh, there's a turmeric liqueur out of the Pacific Northwest. I think liqueurs are going to get weirder and I support that even though it's a losing battle, right? Cause the weirder you get, the more niche you get, the less you sell, right? 
I still support it because I like weird. For Amari, I honestly don't think much is going to change. It's an old world concept. And I mean, aside from things getting less expensive, maybe, for, you know, especially with Campari being on the rise as a brand, I really don't think it's a category that's going to undergo a radical shift between now and when we do our next State of the Union. Although hopefully by that time, it'll be different. And I'll be able to say like, all right, here's something that's just starting to kick off. Gotcha. Yeah. Worthy of at least one more Amaro episode, probably two or three. We'll get there. Oh, we will. All right. Um, what about the ready to drink category? So I remember on New Year's, I uh, snapped, I snapchatted or Instagram messaged uh, you and some other people with that canned Manhattan. What do you think about that category? I think ready to drink cocktails are a great gateway drug for people who only drink vodka sodas. Personally, I really don't value ready to drink whatsoever because it's lazy. It's lazy. And I think it values the end goal of being drunk rather than the flavor experience. Because no matter what happens when you put something in a can like that, you're going to be making sacrifices. And so if you're the kind of person who says like, oh, did I make this as well as I could based on what I had at hand? The answer is no, you were lazy. You just popped a tab. That's kind of the point. Um, so ready to drink is going to get a lot of investment. It is currently getting a ton of corporate money thrown at it. If you want to see less of it at the stores, don't buy it and tell your friends not to buy it and give them a bottled cocktail that you made yourself as, as an alternative. And that's a great way to keep less of that garbage on the shelves. Yeah, I could almost see a future, and we'll get into this um, actually with our next question, but similar to how I can go to my local brewery with an empty growler, if I could go to my local distillery, have them pour me a takeaway half liter or one liter bottle of Negroni or something like that that I can take to a party, hands down prefer that to taking a 12-pack of White Claw Spike Seltzers. Right. Well, and I will say, too, on that note, like this is not to say that you might not see embitterment bitters included as an ingredient in a in a bottled cocktail or a like a um, seltzer in the future, because if we have one thing to offer, it's that our stuff is actually good and it's actually going to stand up in that situation. Um, but in terms of people who are doing the work to roll this out like that is that is not our goal. We will be an ingredient in it in order to make something that's mediocre just a little bit better. But that's not something that I'm really interested in actually creating myself. All right, listeners, no whiskey in a can, but if we endorse it, we stand behind it. We've tried it. We've developed it. We made it good. You can trust us. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't trust us, but let's go. Keep going. You know, we, we've run into this a lot. This is always the thing that, you know, I would say is probably the biggest impediment to innovation or just growth of this industry is government regulation. How do you think this is going to evolve? Do you think home distilling is going to go the way of home brewing and home winemaking? You know, what do you want to see? Let's just pretend that Trump is listening and you can get something changed. I think it's huge. It's absolutely, it's, it's huge. Um, we have the best home distillers here. In the United States, um, no. What I would, what I would say is that, I, I mean, you can look at regulations from a safety perspective. Like everything comes down to a freedom versus security debate, right? So, from the perspective of security, I really hope home distilling is not a thing. I hope that there turns out to be some people who build a facility with 
a set of stills on it and then host classes there for people who want to learn to distill to do it in kind of like an incubator or accelerator setting so that people don't have to set up stills and risk home fires, right? We just had that episode with Yanni Barakas uh, from Mason Dixon Distilling said he almost burned his garage down and his home along with him when he was a kid. Like this, it's dangerous stuff. So from a distilling, pure distilling perspective, I'm glad the government does not permit people to distill at home. Yes, there are electric stills out there. Yes, there, there are ways to do it without vapors, but I don't think that those yield nearly the same results. So I'm really not going to give them the time of day right now until I run across a product out on the market for home distilling that actually yields really high quality results. So maybe in two years, this is going to be something to talk about. But the other thing that I would say from a regulatory standpoint is that the, the biggest garbage thing out there is state controlled liquor systems. I mean, if you are any history buff at all, if you're, you're somewhat familiar with how our, our government started, it started with the articles of confederation. That was the first United States government and every state issued its own currency. And the result was states could really not communicate with each other. And, and a similar, less less strict version of that is kind of playing out with liquor control control states right now and that there are some states where craft producers have a really hard time getting in because the state controls it and the state is not interested in helping a craft distiller from another state get it to get established and and that's a a really injurious thing and and it's there's just so many laws pertaining to prohibition and all that all that stuff uh that are that are so harmful so i'd say if you live in a liquor control control state i i feel for you it's garbage and if there's any way you can support getting that changed make it happen uh i think if anything we got screwed a bit with marijuana because marijuana is almost making liquor look bad in terms of like oh marijuana is better for you than drinking alcohol we got all these studies in support of legalizing marijuana and now I think alcohol is kind of like taking a bit of a hit for that. So uh, it's a tricky situation, but uh, boo control states. Gotcha. Um, one one little bit on that that I can remember from the days in Virginia and Pennsylvania is that those states both have liquor control. And an interesting part of it is even when they support the craft producers, they aren't as friendly to. So a good example, Maryland rye is a category unto itself. Go find a Virginia ABC store that is promoting Maryland rye, even though they're right over the border. I'll wait. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So they might be promoting Virginia wines. They might be promoting our great friends at Catoctin Creek. But if you live in a different state, they could give a fuck about you. Correct. Correct. Yep. All right. So we're going to do um, what's here to stay, what's on its way out. I'm going to hold you to these because when we do the next day of the union, we're going to play these back and see how wrong you were. Okay. Clarified juices and clarified punches. I'd say clarified everything is here to stay, uh, at least for the next couple of years, because it's interesting. There's so many ways to do it. And I think it's a way for bartenders who got kind of introduced into the cocktail renaissance a couple years ago to keep on pushing themselves. So I, I, I think that you'll see it continue to stay. It's something I'm personally interested in. So maybe I'm a little biased, but I think it's here to stay. All right. What about like carbonation by fermentation? So I'm talking natural sodas, kombuchas, 
um, Tapache, those kind of things that you can use in lieu of a seltzer. I think it's going to have to fight to stay because there's a lot of regulation about how this can be done safely in a bar, restaurant, or kitchen setting, right? Like they talk a decent bit about this on cooking issues with people who want to do like pickling stuff. There are some strict regulations in some place. So if it's going to stay, it's going to have to fight. I, I don't think it's ever going to go away, but I really don't see it being as dominant as kombucha was maybe over the past two years. I think it's on a bit of a downslide. All right, draft cocktails. I think those are going to stay, but they're going to plateau. Because if you think about what's happening, right? Like, what's the beauty of a draft cocktail? Beauty is it comes out in like 30 seconds and the immediate gratification. And it's like 90% as good as a real cocktail. Well, if draft cocktails hit their peak, I think what's going to happen is people are going to start asking like, oh, wait, like, what are cocktails again? Like, what's a cot? Like, what's the value of a real, like, non draft cot, like a handcrafted one? And I think at that point, you're going to see them plateau off. I don't think you're going to see them go away per se, but I think you're going to see programs that, like, get their draft cocktail section in line and have that as a small corner of the menu, but then focus back on the stuff that's, that's actually, like, handcrafted. It'll be really interesting to see if it plays into the automation debate that we see in other industries, because basically what you're doing is you're automating someone's manual work away from them. And, uh, you know, like I can make I can make a thousand Negronis or I can make one Negroni. Why? Uh, why economically do I pay you? Right. Well, I mean, there's questions about that with stability, especially when acidity is involved. There's there's stuff about like the fidelity of the lines that they're actually using, what the what the lines uh, that pull the draft are actually made of. So there is significant nuance and it does take a lot of skill to pull off a good draft cocktail because you also have to plan for dilution ahead of time and, and figure out how that's going to affect stability in your batch sizes. But Overall, it can be done really well. There's a lot of places here. DC Destination Wedding, run by our friend Robin Miller, who uh, did the Mezcal episode with us. That's a great all-draft setup, but I, I don't think that all-draft is going to be a huge thing in two years from now. If anything, I hope that what it does is push more differentiation from the from our community to force that issue to what is worth your money to pay for and to really push those lower quality people out of the market. Totally. All right. Um, all right. Uh, the you know trend towards Amaro, Amari, bitter things. I think it might drop off a bit with people who are already aware, but I think the big opportunity here is for people who are not in a an urban market, people who might not have had access to a ton of Amari, I think there's big opportunities in secondary markets for Amari to get better known and better distributed. So I think if there's a smart Amaro brand rep or distributor out there, I think they're going to start looking more towards secondary markets and knowing that their regular markets are never going to be as excited as they were over the past, like maybe five years, but that they're still going to be solid, which means they can turn a portion of their resources toward educating markets that they haven't really tapped into yet. So the smart ones will do that. The other ones won't. All right, um, let's go into two bar concepts just to round it out because um, they're both places where you and I together and separately have had a lot of fun. We've made some good friends. Start off with Tiki Bars. So first off, how good was Zombie Village in San Francisco? That was tremendous. 
Though we went there uh, after I, I judged at uh, the American Distilling Institute annual judging of craft spirits this past January, and I gotta say, Zombie Village, fantastic. They do great cocktails, fantastic atmosphere, and it's never too crowded because they actually have door control. So it's a place where you can go actually enjoy your drink without having three people deep behind you, uh, kind of like angling for for another mai tai or whatever. So I love tiki. Put that out there right now. I think tiki is dope. Unfortunately, tiki has this problem where it's like never mainstream. If it ever gets mainstream, it's not tiki anymore. And I think we'll we'll see a very interesting case study with this play out at the wharf here in DC with Tiki TNT, which is a celebrity chef slash bartender tiki bar slash distillery by Todd Thrasher, right? Because you've got the popular aspect, but you've also got the tiki. So we, I'm curious to see what plays out with that. But I think overall... I think Tiki might go go back a little bit underground, maybe. I don't want to say underground, but I think Tiki is this trend that sometimes needs to rejuvenate itself. It needs to be gone, and people need to miss it a little bit in order for it to be appreciated fully. I think every big city should have a great Tiki bar that is always there. And and big cities do tend to have those things, like Smuggler's Cove in San Francisco, um, the Polynesian. Um, like, there's there's... I think that's great, but I think Tiki as a trend every once in a while just needs to go underground. So we'll see if it keeps peaking or if it maybe drops off a little bit to, to recover and like a wave kind of gather force and, and, and rise again. I mean, even though we're supposed to be doing this quickly, I want to posit something, which is that the cocktail bar culture of the last say decade or two had really been pushed out from New York in every direction. They radiated outwards. That is great. We got excellent drinks and a great cocktail culture globally from it. Tiki is a West Coast U.S. and Southeast Asia Pacific concept. I feel like that was San Francisco pushing back and saying, you aren't valuing the cultural significance of the bar history that we have in this booze-soaked like town of debauchery because San Francisco is a dirty town. Oh, Love yeah. living it's, there. It's, but. Yeah, it's 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 wet. It's a wet town. It's like saying, "Hey, New York, you really think you're that gritty and tough?" Well, guess what? We get sloshed, and we've been doing it since the fucking gold rush. <laughs> I don't know. My hot take. All right, let's talk about the uh, the thing that get, gets everyone into cocktails at some point. The no sign, you know, little like twelve seater uh, speakeasy kind of bar concept. Do you think that's going to be around in five years? Um, I think right now it's being taken to an extreme. Like there's there's one. I think there's a there's a bar called Toll Booth in New York City right now where it's a two seat speakeasy, literally in a toll booth. I think the problem with speakeasies in general is that. There's no teeth to them anymore. What was the what was the the draw of the speakeasy? You were doing something naughty, right? You were you were flying in the face of of the the rules, right? And I think I think speakeasies are cool if they do a good job to evoke that, but then also differentiate themselves. I think a great example would be Nocturne Bar here in D.C. Hakeem Hamid was on our podcast. They're a speakeasy concept, but they're a speakeasy that takes reservations like a normal restaurant. So you know how to like actually do it so you don't waste your time and show up there and then end up not having a seat, right? Um, so they've got like the hospitality on point, but they've also, they also have this awareness about the world that they're in and, and they have, 
it's funny, you go into this little speakeasy in, in the basement of this Sugar Shack donut shop, and it's almost like you, you've gone down into this little basement, but then the cocktails that they serve you look out at the greater world. And I think that's an evolved version of a speakeasy that doesn't have the teeth that a real true speakeasy has. So if you want speakeasies to make a comeback, you should make a bar in your house and charge people money. But I'm not actually saying you should do that because that's crazy illegal. Um, so like if that, those are my thoughts on the speakeasy. It's, it's a thing that is a cultural heritage that I don't think people really know what to do with now. So it was a useful way to scaffold people into cocktails about 10 years ago. I think it, every year it has become less and less useful unless like Nocturne, you have an evolved take on what that is and, and more to bring to the table than besides like that cultural, like, ah, I'm sticking it to the man. There's no sign. Fair. And I'll take the illegal drinking thing. This will actually make a good transition. Was I just came from, you know, you have it in D.C. We had it in uh, Somerville, Mass. Uh, Porch Fest, you know, you just basically go around and just completely flout open container laws. Understanding that the police who are keeping crowd control are only going to bother you if you're causing a nuisance. The speakeasy bar concept no longer needs that. And it's kind of it. You know, it, it allowed some people to try some in innovative stuff and make it seem really subversive. We just got to figure out what's subversive next. Think about it this way. Speakeasies are like the early days of Christianity when the Christians were <laughs> who everybody wanted to kill. And so they had to go underground. They had to do like their weird little sects and... Then you look at Christianity, like once it became the dominant force and you're like, oh, it's churches and like churches are nothing like what it was in the early days, you know? So it's uh, not, not to, not to fully endorse Christianity here. It's, it's, it's a, it's a metaphor here. I'm a, I'm a reformed Catholic, but I think that kind of paints the picture of, of what it was and that necessary heritage with what it is now and why that, that heritage was necessary, but no longer necessarily useful today. Sure. And the reason I was going with these things like Porch Fest is because it was hot outside, hot for the first time in, in the Boston area. And D.C. is a horrible place to be in in the summer, but a really fun place to be in in the summer. And all I can remember is being dehydrated, sweaty and uncomfortable when I would go out day drinking on weekends. You and I are experts on this. Let's talk about like some advice for our listeners if they're in the southeast in D.C., the mid-Atlantic. How can you do day drinking better when it's 95 degrees out? How do you stay comfortable? How do you stay sober? How do you stay hydrated? Well, I think we, we all need to kind of channel our inner frat boy because I think frat boys got it right, you know, because they're, they're drinking, you know, natty lights and things that are, you know, fairly low alcohol and they've got a decent pop of water in there while you're getting drunk. So you've, you've got your feeling of of like the, the alcohol but you you've also got the fact that you're putting water into your body so i think the highball is a fantastic concept for the summer here i mean i love a good whiskey highball um i've been really getting into scotch and bourbon and rye highballs um so what i'd recommend is think about it this way if you're the kind of person who likes to bring a bottled cocktail to a party, think about how you can incorporate a little bit of citrus into that, right? Make it a little bit tangy. Maybe use a clear spirit instead of a, an aged one. Maybe go gin, vodka, mezcal tequila instead of dark rum, 
bourbon scotch um, and, and bring a really nice bottle of or, or two of sparkling water to go with it so that your guests or the other people you're drinking with can pour a little bit of the bottled cocktail and then turn it into a highball and try and find a way to direct people to understand that it's meant to be a highball, right? Kind of try and celebrate that, try and play it up. And that's a great way if you're trying to be really responsible with hydration and still have a good time to, to like really class up a party with a handcrafted cocktail, but then also like do a public service to everybody else who's there. Yeah, I once uh, took a make-your-own Moscow Mule bar to a party. It's a little bit over the top, but it was that idea. Exactly. Water down your booze to your taste, but I recommend watering it down. All right, we're going to go a little more lightning round, but with some fun, and you know, try to try to make this, uh, try to round this guy out. So let's say you have a time machine. It only works once, so you're only going backwards and forwards once. All right. Twice, because the first time you got to go back and kill Hitler. That's a given. Right. Right. <laughs> All right. So Although Man in the High Hitler, Castle is such a great show. Fair. But I think the concept of Hitler could be created by all the people, by at least one of the 20 million people he didn't kill. That's true. Sorry, 6 million. Stalin killed 20 million. All right. Well, it's a lot of dead. All right. Bodies. I can try and get ambitious in that in this backwards assassination. But let's get to the question. All right, yeah, let's not talk about history. That's for Dan Carlin. Um, on your non-Hitler killing or non-Stalin killing trip, you go back in time. There, We talk about all these things that we're trying to recreate. What's an ingredient or a booze that is never going to be resurrected or never going to be the same that you want to try the original of? When do you go back? What do you drink? So there was this really cool presentation that I went to a couple of years ago. It tells the cocktail about chartreuse and everybody who listens knows that chartreuse is my favorite liquid. So the origin story for chartreuse comes from this carriage, this mysterious carriage horse drawn that, that clattered into this kind of hospital district in Paris in the year 1605 and this is where they kind of came up with the 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 original manuscripts for what is called the elixir de vegetal or the kind of like the elixir of long life and it took the carthusian monks who originally got their hands on this it took them i want to say over 100 years 130 years my notes say here to to decipher what that meant and to turn it into the first kind of proto chartreuse. And so I think since I'm such a chartreuse fanatic, I'd want to go back, kind of witness that handoff and like see like this manuscript that was passed down through the middle ages and taste that first elixir and, and what it was. And I, I have selfish reasons for that. Um, but I also have professional reasons and I'm going to leave that as a, as a kind of, deliberate teaser for some projects that, that may or may not um, come to light here in the next year. All right. So after you get back, you've, yeah, I imagine time machines have jet lag. So you take a couple days, you get back in your timeline and you can acquire one piece of bartending gear that you and your wife and your business partners have just said is a little bit too expensive for you to pull the trigger on. What is it? I mean, honestly, the two that I'd really like, uh, one would be like a super large format separatory funnel. Uh, we were talking about clarified cocktails before and like the way that 
you most easily clarify something without the centrifuge effect. Um, we've talked about how expensive Dave Arnold spins alls are, but the, the way you do that is you, you put uh, kind of like a curdling or separating agent into the cocktail or the spirit or whatever your mixture is. And the heavy stuff kind of falls to the bottom and the clarified stuff tends to stay on top. So if you've got a device where you can let out all the kind of garbage at the bottom, and then once that's out, kind of like stop it right when you're only at the clear stuff, the like large scale producers will call this racking off the bottom. Yep. If you can do that, then that's really helpful. So I think either a large format separatory funnel or one of those Kong shakers, which is kind of like I've described it in, in, in at least one episode before. It's like got this like basically imagine it's the 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 arm motion you do when you're on one of those weird arm toning machines at the gym. And it's like you're pedaling a bike, but with your arms, except imagine that's just shaking a cocktail really beautifully. And I like this for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a spectacle and people are going to look at you when you do it. Right. So it makes, you know, I, as somebody who does events very often, I like being a spectacle and like getting people in engaged. Uh, but also it's this cool technical crossover between shaking and stirring, because when you're shaking, you're being way more aggressive and you're causing more dilution. But when you're stirring, you're causing less than that. So it's this really cool technical middle point between shaking and stirring. That's really interesting to me. So I'd like to pass some cocktails through that and see um, what happens, but it was a limited release product by monkey shoulder. And I think it was stupid of them to make it a limited release because I want one. And that's stupid that I don't have one monkey shoulder. Uh, we'll get some mechanical engineers on this. Uh, that sounds like something we could we could machine. Yeah, I think so. All right, a couple a couple of things. Um, let's go. Let's go this way. You know, you and I we've been drinking together for over a decade. Legally, we you know if anyone if any law enforcement are listening, actually just for the last nine to ten years. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> if you could, if you could advise someone who's turning 21, you know, what drinking advice would you give them? And what kind of things did we do that you would you know, try to help them skip? It's funny. I think the only, the, like the one really terrible drinking experience I remember us having is that one terrible case of Sarnak beer that we got from the Gettysburg beer Mart and either it was mistreated or Sarnak is just a garbage beer. I don't know. I never went back cause that case was so bad, but I think like, like based on our experience, the best thing you can do for yourself. And this is a really tricky thing to do if you are under age, because the United States has a different age for legal drinking than for example, Europe. And the way that I talk about this is the differences between the various manual, uh, various editions of the DSM, which is the manual that psychologists use to diagnose various psychological disorders. So in one manual of the DSM, autism may be classified as one thing, and in the next, it may be classified as something different. So literally, when people publish a different manual of the DSM, you may be autistic or not autistic, just based on the way that regulations have changed. And I think that reveals a kind of disturbing or unsettling proof that, that the hard and fast lines that we draw are not super useful. So actually what I advocate is for parents not to host parties where there's alcohol present. I think it's silly to give other people's kids alcohol. That's just inviting liability. But I think overall, my advice would be to take the European mindset. I think um, if you are somebody who's interested in consuming alcohol and you are a young person, I think it is worthwhile to experiment with that in an environment that is extremely controlled 
and one that you really understand what's happening to your body when you drink it. I think the best way for that to happen is a gl half a glass of wine at dinner, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, 19 years old. I think a half a glass of wine at dinner is is a great entryway to that. And I think what that prepares you to do is once you get out of that really controlled setting that you know and you feel comfortable with is to understand what's going to happen to your body when you take this in and to be able to understand that, especially when the setting changes and it's a less controlled setting, because I think that's where people really get out of control with alcohol and make and form preferences that end up just turning them into boring drinkers later on is that they just end up getting into the frat party mentality and, you know, light beer is light beer. It gets the job done. It's a means to an end as opposed to a, an Epicurean experience. And so I think to, to give yourself that context is really important. And, and the last thing I would say as a writer on that is that sugar is almost always a terrible thing. If you're trying to teach yourself to be a better drinker, there's a place for sugar, but if you're going out to a store and buying something that already has sugar included in it, it's going to be bad news. I'd say take control of your sugar and learn to, to train your palate to be more sensitive to sugar by, by taking less into your body on a regular basis. I think that's how you become a really good drinker at a young age. Um, if you have that opportunity or if you're at a, a place in a place in the world where, where you, you don't have to wait until 21 to start drinking. Yeah. And I'll add on just on the sugar topic that, uh, when you're 21, you can, your body can handle a lot of that sugar. We've all seen that those people who, uh, never, I would say basically don't get hooked on sugar as a vehicle for drinking because your metabolism slows down and you don't want to be the person who looks like they let themselves go at your five-year reunion. So, uh, yeah. Right. There's a reason why I'm the guy doing a three-day fast right now. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, we're coming into the home stretch. What's a common cocktail ingredient you've never tried being the man of the world that you are? Amaretto. All right. And uh, well, this is mostly because of the DiSorono commercials. Do you remember those? Oh, God. Yeah. DiSorono on the rocks. Oh, the, the ones that I saw when I was a teenager, they, they were like perfume slash lingerie commercials. It was like some woman whispering like DiSorono. I was like, I don't think that's what I want to drink. I don't know. It just I... creeped me out. <laughs> I thought it was a scotch or like an Italian whiskey until I found out it was like, oh, this is just sugar water with almonds in it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Di Sarono. I think it really was a marketing campaign that was ahead of its time and behind its time simultaneously. Because if you just put a different product in there, it'd be like, oh, damn, I'm buying that. But you put some like weird brown liquor with a square twist top on it. They had a square twist top. That you don't whisp whispers and squares are not the same thing. Whispers are rounds. What are these people? Oh, these people should have called me when I was a kid. I know. Um, they were selling it like it was. Remember, ah, oh, Zima. Yeah, Zima. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Same idea. All right. Um, we start with a history question. Let's go out on one. Um, what person from history, alive or dead, uh, do you wish you could interview for this podcast? And what's the show topic? I would want to interview Jean-Antoine Briat-Savarin, who is a French author and polymath responsible for a book called The Physiology of Tastes or 
meditations on transcendental gastronomy. He was essentially like a reverse Ben Franklin, if you think of it that way. He was a French guy around the time of the French Revolution who actually ended up spending a significant amount of time in the United States. So he was a transatlantic guy for some reason. I think he was a judge or something, and he got like banished from various regimes as there was a lot of um, upheaval uh, during and following the French Revolution, but he was able to see some of these excesses at the French court of some of these, like Louis, whether it was 14 or 16, I don't know who he was, who he was alive for, and then also to see what was going on in the colonies. So he was there to see kind of like these lavish champagne, like, and like truffled turkeys and like these crazy things he'd read about in this book that were going on at these royal courts. And then he also was a frequenter of like the tavern um, culture in the United States. And I think he really is, to me, the father of flavor in the West. All right. Always an interesting topic. Uh, glad that uh, glad that you can br bring a uh, call it a French gourmand back into the century. Well, I mean, he was the guy who first, like that's when restaurant culture also first popped up, which is like, like how often do you get an account of, of a, like a almost like quasi medieval court and then talk about the modern restaurant. It's just like, he was really a man at a time that was like crucial to everything that we understand as flavor. So it would have to be that. Well, well, right back then. I mean, we'll, we'll do this as another podcast, but the history is you go from, the aristocracy has cooks in their house serving banquets. Then you get to the point where the only chefs and restaurants are in hotels, grand hotels in the 1800s and early 1900s. Restaurants were for the poor, were for the disenfranchised and for the common man who didn't even have a pot to piss in, much as much less a stove to cook on. Yep. So it's 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 a, so, yeah, he he was the guy where all the all those forces started to coalesce. So he'd be my pick. Also still really want to get George Carlin on the podcast. Yeah. Agree. All right. Um let's uh let's just do some housekeeping, you know, the standard podcast stuff. Uh first off, what's coming next? Where can we see you? What do you want to do more of? And how can we support modern bar card? Do you want to plug anything? Oh, I want to plug everything. So you can see me in person at Tales of the Cocktail 2019 in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, you can also see Ethan Hall and Russell Gehring. You don't really want to see Russell Gehring. It's just going to confuse you. Uh, but we will be down there, and we'll be doing some recaps of our seminars where I basically got the modern bar cart squad on an education mission. We're all attending different seminars. We're going to take notes. We're going to uh, kind of recap and, and uh, record that for all of our listeners. Uh, but if you are somebody who is also attending tales of the cocktail 2019, we want to hear from you and we want to see if we could set up something where we can, you know, maybe record something with you. So please reach out podcast at modern Let us know if you're going to be there and we'll try and set something up in terms of, what I want to do more of one thing that's going to be happening in the near future is, is more video. We've got some videos uh, from past episodes that, that have taken a little while to process uh, that are going to be coming out. We've got one from our Mason Dixon distilling episode, as well as one from our recent don't sleep on Kings episode. Most of this is just a hardware problem where we're, we're in the early phases of working video non-live uh, into our workflow. And hopefully what we can do with everyone else's support out there from our listeners is continue to work video into our format. We want to make this a more engaging format for you. 
And we want to take this podcast to the next level, because as I was mentioning earlier in the show, what really successful, really high quality podcasts need to do is they need to keep pushing the boundaries. And that's what we're going to keep on doing here for you. So if anyone has ways that they can support us with that, please, please, we would, we would welcome it. And if anyone has ideas or guidance they'd want to offer, same, uh, same email address applies. Awesome. All right. Well, I think this is like a great opportunity for one last hurrah on this podcast and I don't like I don't want to diminish the credit we need to give to you for everything you've done here but let's thank some people who do you want to give credit to what's the behind the scenes talent that has made this all happen I feel like most people when they hear our podcast credits roll they kind of switch off I mean it's what I do when I listen to podcasts when the credits roll I'm out of there Huge, huge credit needs to go out to our audio technician, Samantha Reed, who is responsible for making our crappy audio sound good when it's crappy and making our good audio sound great when it's good. She works with me week after week. And, and if you've noticed a perceptible uptick in the quality of our audio. It's, it's hundred percent due to Sammy, uh, has nothing to do with me. So she's a, a super valuable member of our team. I obviously also have to thank my wife, Carolyn for, for allowing me to, uh, load up our apartment with this equipment and for kind of quasi subsidizing this project that we're doing. And, uh, definitely no thanks to Russell. Uh, again, like we're shitting all over this guy right now. Cause he says he doesn't listen to the podcast cause it's weird to hear my voice. So if, if, if he actually comes back on me with this, I'll, I'll take it as a compliment cause it means he's listening. So, so yeah, no thanks to Russell. Um, but no, literally the only friend you have who hasn't been on the podcast, right? It's true. It's going to, it's going to be a weird day when it happens. Um, but actually, actually many thanks to Russell because he is actually the guy who behind the scenes is working with me on the logistical stuff, like getting our products made. Uh, he's going to be <laughs> moving a bunch of stuff between storage units with me tomorrow, just lifting boxes. Thank thanklessly. Um, so actually a uh, huge thanks to Russell as well. And mostly to all the guests who have, who have agreed to come on and, and who continue to, to help us support the podcast. This is a mostly interview podcast and I, that scratches my per personal itch. And I, and I think it scratches a lot of itches for our listeners. So listeners, if you know anybody who would want to come on our podcast, please, again, this email podcast at modern goes right to my phone. Like, please let us know. And we're going to keep on raising the bar here uh, with what we do. Dude, thank you. This is awesome. And like, seriously, I'll, I'll gush over this in a different show, different episode. But, you know, you have taken something that we conceptualized via text message across states, handed handed off a thriving but minor business and have, you know, you're really catapulting this. This is a uh, we're you're doing huge stuff and can't thank you enough for, you know, really seeing this as a brand baby that we uh, share share custody of. And, you know, I really feel like uh feel like she's she's grown into a beautiful, beautiful woman. Yeah. And uh, I, I think we've I, we've had a few discussions about how we can maybe uh, start to offer some some additional and or premium content to our listeners. So so I would say uh, listeners, don't worry if, if you're if you're really you know, going to miss Ethan's voice, then, then we might be trying to get that voice up on the podcast a little bit more often in the future. Cheers, man. All right. Cheers. Thanks for the interview, buddy.
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. (laughs) 